Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss the updates on the great writers we have coming up over the next few weeks. And if you want to see photos of the studio and the cocktails getting made, check out my Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please leave a comment. I want to hear about the writers you want to hear on this show. I've been getting a lot of great booking ideas from you guys. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're talking with Andrew Claven. Andrew is the award-winning author of more than 30 books, including True Crime, which was made into a movie with Clint Eastwood, and Don't Say a Word, made into a movie starring Michael Douglas. He's been nominated for five Edgar Awards, winning twice. He also hosts the hit show, The Andrew Claven Show, available as a podcast and on YouTube, where he has hundreds of thousands of subscribers. His latest is the novel The House of Love and Death, which features the return of the character Cameron Winter, a former spy and assassin turned English professor. The book's already getting terrific reviews, including a starred review from Publishers Weekly and glowing praise from Stephen King. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you kindly. It's good to be here. So we are going to be having some Macallan 12-year scotch. <laughs> ah, that's the real stuff. Yeah. And I've, we've got it in the box here, which I'm going to undo. And uh, I am excited to have a glass of scotch with Andrew Claven and learn some stuff here today, if I can get this open the foil going. Yes, this is the hardest part. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I found a little tab that helps me get to the board. There you go. Now, a couple ice cubes or? Uh, Just one ice cube would be considered a sin, but. I'm actually going to go two ice cubes. Yeah, they're small. (laughs) They're small ice cubes. All right, well, there's more where that came from. You'll <laughs> we'll carry me out of here. <laughs> Thank you kindly. Cheers. Great Cheers. to see you. Cheers. Thanks for having me. McAllen, mm. that's yeah. nice. Good deal. That's really smooth going down. Yeah. Okay, so as we were just talking about, uh, before we got started, you grew up 
in Long Island, sort yep. of a New York City suburb. And your father, Gene, was a DJ. Yeah, he he was a he was like a, a top DJ in New York, which was a bigger deal then because there were no national DJs. Like uh, there were a few, but not like Rush or somebody like that who really mm-hmm. would just be all over the country. To be in New York was to be the in the top market. Yeah. And uh, he was a precursor of guys like Howard Stern. He was really offbeat and hilarious, and you know did some really different stuff on the air. I mean, those those were the days. I remember, I mean, speaking of Stern, I remember the early Stern days when he was sort of taking over market by market. My drive to school every morning was John DeBella in the morning zoo in Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah, the zoos, right. Yeah. yeah, and so that was, I mean, that was a huge outreach. That's sort of how media happened back in those days. Yeah, yeah. And my father was just, he, he was on with a guy named Finch. They were team Clavin and Finch. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bob and Ray, I don't know if you remember Bob and Ray, were kind of invented to be the West Coast Clavin and Finch. And uh, my father was a an expert at doing voices. I mean, he was the best voice man I ever heard until that guy who does all the voices on The Simpsons, uh, who was really good too. But he could, do, he could talk absolute fake Italian to an Italian, and it would take the <laughs> Italian <selling>. 10 <laughs> minutes before he realized he was just hearing double talk. That's know? great. Well, it's in the genes, because you've got that sort of deep, resonant oh, voice yeah. that works on, on radio, too. Uh, and I also, in doing some research on you, I saw you are surrounded by creative brainiac family members. You've I am. got a sister-in-law as a writer, father-in-law as a writer, your son Spencer is a classicist. Right. I'm I'm related, I think, to every writer in America. If you and I don't have some kind of blood connection, I'll be surprised. Yeah, no, uh, my, my sister-in-law is uh, Caitlin Flanagan. My cousin is Emily Bazelon over at the New York Times. And uh, my son, as you say, is a, he's a terrific writer and a very, very skilled classicist. Uh, my daughter has a book coming out for Christmas. Um, yeah, so oh, everybody... amazing. Yeah, I know. You guys are all... It's like the rising tide there. You're all sort of pushing each other, inspiring each other to... Do more. Either that or dragging each other down into <laughs> the world of letters, this disappearing world of literature. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. So you went to UC Berkeley undergrad, English yeah. Lit, and then uh, your early career was in radio and as a news reporter. Yeah. The, when I was 19, I dropped out of school and I got a job at this tiny radio station in Berkeley. And Patty Hearst was kidnapped, which at the time was the crime of the century. Mm-hmm. And it happened around the corner for me. And so I was 19 years old covering the top story in the country with some of the biggest names in journalism. And so it was what an year education. would that have been? Let's see. That was 19. I'm going to guess now. So I figure it's 1973 or four or something okay. like that. Yeah. Okay. So roughly 20 years. So I can see how that would make some careers in a way. Because I, even I know that story, although I was young then, but there are many documentaries. But Fast forward 20 years to OJ. That was a similar kind of thing. That makes so many careers in journalism yes. you know, following that story. Well, it was it, this was a wild story because she was an heiress. She got kidnapped by a radical group. She joined the radical joined group, them, right, then right. claimed she had been forced to join it. And they all ended in gunfire in a Los Angeles house that burned down to the ground. It was quite a dramatic story. You know? Yeah. You had the journalist bug from early on, though. Well, you know, it was kind of I only wanted to do one thing. All I wanted to do was write novels. That was the only thing I ever really wanted to after I got past being one to be like a cowboy and a you know <laughs> fireman. <laughs> fireman yeah exactly and all i ever wanted to do and this was a way you know based on guys like hemingway and that where you got the experience and you saw you know quote unquote real life and you learn stuff and i did i mean i as a journalist you actually saw things that you wouldn't see and talk to people that you wouldn't talk to otherwise and it was just it just filled your world a lot faster than you would have filled it just reading about it i totally i mean if you're gonna write one of the 
things you can do first is live, you know, yes. have some experience. And journalism seems like a great way to sort of fill yourself up. As Hemming would say, fill up the well, you yep. know, and then that's a great way to fill it up before you. It is. And it right. also teaches you like things that you don't want to think about matter, like the numbers in a budget and, uh, you know, the process by which a, a law is made and all those things that you actually don't care about uh, because you're a, a novelist. So your head is in the cloud somewhere. They actually matter. They actually are part of the way the world works. Yeah. And, and for print journalism, at least you're using the writing muscles, you know, you're out there some for some people just putting the pen to paper or starting to getting on the keyboard that's hard enough alone but you as a matter of practice are doing that yep. daily as a journalist yes and uh, part of the time i was a radio writer where in the old days you wrote with a teletype three teletypes clacking and televisions on mm-hmm. and radios on and all these diff- all this noise going on and you realize like i'll never be bothered by noise ever again like i'll, I'll be able to write everywhere anywhere forever. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I know you were more of a secular Jewish family growing yeah. up, and you've talked a bit about this. You've actually written a book about your conversion from that to the Christian faith. Yeah. What? And so we don't need to go deep in that because I know that's that's kind of out there. But what did inspire you to actually put it into a book form? Well, I was I was talking to a priest actually, and I told him this story about how I had thrown out the thousands of dollars worth of gifts I got from my bar mitzvah because I thought I, I was lying. You know, I didn't really believe what I was saying. And so I felt like ill-gotten gains. I'm telling him this story. And I'm, I don't know, I'm about 30 or something like this, 30, 35. And he turns to me and he says, you know, that's a great story. And I paused and I thought, you know, I've never told anybody that story before. It never occurred to me that it actually is a great story. And and I was by then a professional storyteller. I mean, it's what I was doing for a living. So I thought, gee, there, there must be more there. And I want to tell that story. And it was a revelation even to me that telling the story kind of showed me myself in ways I hadn't seen myself before. So it was more like, I mean, were you trying to get a message to some people like this can happen or were you No, I just thought it was, I thought it was a unique story. Yeah. I, I had never heard anybody else. So truly like take, your novelistic yes. instincts taking over. Like yes. I've got a good story here. And by the way, I thought all the gifts at bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs were just cash. So you're getting rid of I, cash. They, they were bonds and jewelry in those days, that jewelry, gold pens and things like that. <laughs> like, I'm telling you, it was like, the, I don't know what I was thinking. It was like thousands and thousands of dollars. And they were all this little jewelry box and one day i just went out and tossed it away like some fool because oh i just like you know, some happy sucker was walking along got hit <laughs> in the shoulder with a box of jewelry either that or it's still buried somewhere in some landfill i don't know oh, that's funny yeah. all right so i also read in, in connection with this that you had previously studied the scripture as literature yeah and now you study it more as you know for for more faith-based but how, how did it so, I mean, take this any way you want to take it, but I'm curious how studying scripture as literature has informed your own storytelling. Well, you know, this was really my entry into this was I started reading. I, I wasn't really a big reader as a little kid. And then I got to about 13, 14, 15, and I was looking for kind of role models um, to be how to be a man. You know, I looked mm-hmm. around and I didn't really see anybody that I wanted to emulate. And I found these tough guy stories, stories like, you know, the Maltese Falcon uh, by Dashiell Hammett and the Big Sleep by Philip Marlowe. And I thought, yeah, these are the kinds of people I want to be. I want to be this kind of incorruptible person who walks through the world as a untouched by by the world. And as I began to read all these things and re- read the books that were connected to them, I started to realize they all had these themes that came out of Christianity and I, about which I knew nothing except the Santa Claus came once a year. And um, and so I thought, well, I ought to read this book just to, you know, I ought to read the Gospels just to inform myself about what the poet William Blake called the great code of literature. 
And th- and that's what I started to do. And then I did become fascinated with those stories, but in a purely secular way. I mean, for years, I would I, re- I wrote a novel about them. I wrote a an historical novel about Jesus, but completely secular. There was no God in it mm-hmm. whatsoever because I realized this is a central character in the imagination of Western man and Western literature. You couldn't tell a story. There were stories that you would read when you would realize, oh, this guy has to die because Jesus died or this guy has to do, you know, betray him because Judas did that. But the book is infused throughout all of literature. So I just wanted to know about it. And then I became kind of gripped by that fact. And Yet I could never believe it until many, many decades later. I mm-hmm. wasn't baptized till I was 49. So. Wow. Yeah. Did you ever pull a book title out of the Bible? I mean, there are a number of people who have done that or, you know, out of like The Grapes of Wrath is from that song. I think Hemingway has a couple – Yep, the sun also pulled, rises. Sun also rises is out of so a, many. But you know, now you're making me think back over 30 years. I do not think I've ever had a purely biblical title. I wrote a trilogy of fantasy thrillers called Another Kingdom, each one of which was based on a kind of um, biblical idea. But I've been very careful. You know, I don't. I don't like preachy fiction, and I'm not trying to sell anybody anything. I just try. I want to tell stories that are realistic. And one of the things. The entire first part of my career, I was writing thrillers where the theme was, how can you ever know what is true? How can you know that, you know, your morals are actually moral? How can you know that your outlook isn't just formed by your upbringing and the places that you came from? And yet at the same time, I always had this feeling, you know, some things are true. It actually is wrong to murder somebody. It actually is wrong to cheat on, you know, cheat people. And these things are not just don't just grow out of a certain way of looking at things. They actually are true. And one of the best things that coming to Christianity did for me was it just let me say, honestly, no, I'm not going to deal with this postmodern nonsense that everything is ephemeral and everything is relative and everything disappears. And it made my fiction so much more hard-boiled and realistic because I no longer had to pretend that there were questions about, you know, are there villains and are there good guys? And yeah. uh, and, and that has, it, it, my biggest fear, truly, and I, I say this, uh, you know, I know it sounds silly, but it is absolutely true. My biggest fear about converting was that I would become nice? That my novel, my novels, my novels would start to have take all the gas out of yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, all I do is I write about gangsters and hookers and all this stuff, you know. Yeah. And I thought, like, oh, suddenly I'm going to write about like bunny rabbits, and it'd just be all. But in fact, my my stories became far, far more insightful and realistic when I stopped having to ask myself, you know, is it all a dream? Is it all relative? Is it all a, a social construct, as they say nowadays? No, it's not. There are things that are basic. It is, it, I, I see what you mean, but I, so in the in the House of Love and Death, which I read and loved, oh, and you. so Cameron Winter is such a fascinating character. Before you and I got going here live, we were, you were talking about a, a mutual friend, Joseph Cannon. One of the things that Joe said to me, and Joseph Cannon has written a number of great books, yeah. like The Good German, which was made into a film, but he was also high in the publishing side of the business, too. And I remember one time he was saying it, you know, it's sort of easy to do good and evil, but what's more nuanced and interesting is to do like the difference between two not very goods. And that can get a little bit more subtle and nuanced. And your protagonist here, Cameron Winter, is like, he's, he's not just a pure, first of all, he's not the sort of walks into the bar, beats up five guys kind of right. character, but he's smart and he's sophisticated and his observations are, are, uh, I, you, you're like you're learning as you go, even though you're reading a you know a mystery novel. I just thought it was terrific. 
Oh, well, thank you. You know, it's really interesting. I mean, I'm coming to that point in a career when you start to look back over your career and, and review it and ask yourself where you've come from and what you're doing. And in this journey that I was talking about before, where I was looking for male role models to base myself on. And I was kind of enamored of this kind of tough guy image, the Hemingway image, the Bogart image and John Wayne and all these people. But the one that really got me and turned me into a mystery writer with a single paragraph was Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe. And The Big Sleep, the first Philip Marlowe book, opens up with him looking at a stained glass window in a mansion where a knight is trying to rescue a, a woman from a who's tied up and waiting for a dragon. And Marlowe says, I would not be able to stand and stare at him frozen there in that window. I'd have to go up there and rescue her myself. And I thought that is an amazing idea that here is this guy in 40s, 50s Los Angeles. It's utterly corrupt. Everyone around him is corrupt, violent. But he's carrying inside himself this idea of a knight. Mm -hmm. uh, an idea from England, you know, an idea from Europe and from the great traditions. And he carries that through him through all the novels that he's in. And that became my basis, which seriously became the basis of how I wanted to live. I just wanted to say, I am going to carry this thing inside me. Chandler's famous line was, down these mean streets, a man must go who is not himself mean, which is where we get mean streets from, mm -hmm. you know. And, and that is, I thought, like, I see that everything is corrupt. But I'm not going to be that way. And that's going to be my version of the tough guy and my version of, of how I want to live. And the thing with Cameron Winters, I feel, and I know I'm not alone in this, I feel that our our society, our civilization, maybe Western civilization, is really in, in dire uh, trouble that the ideas that made us who we are are being drained out of our children. They're not being taught to our children. Mm -hmm. They don't know who they are. They don't know why they should open a door for a lady or yeah. why they should speak uh, a little bit better than they do and learn to speak with different words than they use. So what I wanted to create, I wanted to go back to that original idea and create a man who carries within him. He's a scholar of romantic literature, poetry, who carries within him the traditions of the West but is not only living in a basically at the fall of the republic. I mean, that's really what's happening around him, but is a product of the fall of the republic. He has done some things in his life that he wishes he hadn't, and he can't really get past them. So he's kind of like the uh, the avatar of the guy I wanted to be when I was 15 years old, and he's the, that guy come to life. And that's why that's why when I, the minute I wrote him, I've never written a series before that's gone on more than four books was the most, but really three books is is where I've stopped. Mm -hmm. But the minute I wrote him, I thought, no, I want to write about 10 books about well, this I guy. I can see why you tie back to that Marlowe scene that you talk about the dragon, because that, that is who he is. He yeah. sees trouble and he fixes it. And, right. And, so, well, two, two quick things on that. One is... I'm amazed that you can just quote things. Like, I don't have that brain. You you just recite you, it. It occurred to you like, oh, this. I can see where Spencer gets it and the rest of your family. Because I, the best I can do if I if I think of a reference, I could loosely paraphrase a vague concept. I could no, never, I'm, I'm I like could never too, quote I, something. <laughs> um, I'm like that, too. My, my son has an, a total great memory. I don't have anything like that. But there are some things I remember. Well, I, I do. I want to get into your process. But before we get into that, I wanted to ask you. Why the pen names? So you have written more than 30 books. You have at times used pen names, Keith Peterson and Margaret Tracy. 
Why? Why would you do that instead of? Because this is early in your career. Yeah. I think. I, well, early in my career, I, first of all, I was insane. I was insane until about the age of twenty-eight. I'm, I'm the only person I've ever met who went sane. I, that really is true. Like when I tell people the stories of my life, they're like, "You? Are you kidding?" No. I, and I really did. I really had a. I, I, by the time I was in my late twenties, I was a suicidal, fantasist lunatic, and I found a, a shrink, and he cured me. I, and I've never, I've, I swear, I've never seen, I, I actually believe it to be a miracle. I've never seen anything quite like it. That's fa- So, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. you write very interesting scenes in this book. And we're going to do a whole thing on the book later, yeah. so I don't want to go too deep on the book now, but you write scenes in the book with a therapist. Yeah. So you, you I mean, what was the... I don't know. Was it was this the kind of sort of therapy that we get today? Of, of... no, it was it, first. It was pure talk therapy. And I never took any drugs. I never took any. You know, I never did any kind of strange stuff. It's just me and this guy talking. And I've come to believe very strongly that really the only thing that matters in therapy. Everybody has a different theory, and everybody has a different process. But really, what matters is connection between one person and another and this was a guy that I could look up to and and love as a you know older brother or a father figure and he really straightened me out in a, in a truly miraculous way I mean I can't was he ever overtly giving advice or yeah, were yeah from time to time t- from yeah. time to time I mean he would tell me I was I was brought up in such a strange way I mean my father was an entertainer so he's crazy right entertainers are nuts and he and he had to tell me certain things like that if you work hard, you will be more successful. Things that, you know, I say that and you look, you're look, you looking at me like, you know, how could you not know that? I didn't know. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that you actually had to, you know, I was, I was disciplined. I would write all the time. But I didn't realize that, you know, you don't have to have the weekend to yourself. You don't have to, you know, mm-hmm. take time off. You actually can just work and work until you get what you want. And and that, just that, that piece of advice alone was really helpful. But, but yeah, no, I, so it was... I, I was really kind of a, a kook, and I was writing books that would come out of a radical lunatic, and they were being published by a small press, and they were really strange. But the small press had an ironclad contract where you could, you literally had to give them every book you wrote. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, I have this knack. I know I always knew it's like I the had early this. days of Hollywood. Yes, like, it was like owned that. by the studio. Yep, yeah. yep, and I. But I always had this knack. I mean, everything I loved were these detective stories and Hitchcock movies. And I always had a knack for putting those stories together. And I thought, well, you know, I'm starving. I can't make a living. So I might as well do this for to pick up some extra money. So I did it under a pseudonym so I could break my contract. And uh, and it worked. Well, in one of these, you, you won a, an Edgar under one of these pseudonyms. Yeah. I mean, how did that I, uh, work? Two of them. Uh, yeah, no. I, um, well, can, one, can you redo it and say, actually, that goes to Andrew Claven uh, now? You know, one of them, I, I broke one of them uh, <laughs> swatting a fly. I broke one of my Edgars, and I called them up, and I said, just put my name on it, would you? And they did. They were, oh, that's nice. It was very kind Good. of them, yeah. Um, um, so on to, to process. Uh, so you, you have written here with uh, The House of Love and Death, uh, mystery. So with the mysteries, and, and you've done, I mean, you've written nonfiction, fiction, you've written for film and TV. Yeah. I mean, you, one of the things I love about your career is it's so varied. You've yeah. pursued yeah. whatever you're interested in pursuing and, and succeeded in each of those things. But with the mysteries, do you outline them? Because it's sort of like a who done it. So do you know up front through an outline or so who has done it? Or does that happen as you write? No, I am a compulsive outliner. I mean, I am a, I outline every chapter, virtually every page. I've written 100-page outlines, um, which is a little, that's a little crazy, but I, but I still, and the reason I do it, though, is because I love the writing process. I hate outlining, it's boring, mm-hmm. 
but I love the writing process. And once you've got the outline, even if you change it, it's so much easier to just sit down and write. You yeah. just you don't have to worry what am I what am I doing today? Where are things going? You don't have that terrifying thing where you look at a blank page and think I don't know what's next. You always know. And even if you don't know, even if you realize you've gone down a different path than you thought you were going to, you have it right there. You can fix it on in the outline first, and then go back. Uh, that happens to me almost every book, and and then you go back and fix it on the page, and it just makes the writing process bliss. You know, I love to write, yeah. and I don't have to think about what's happening next or anything like that. No, I, I I agree with you. It's it's so funny. So as you know, on this show, many many authors, everyone's got different answers yeah. to that question. I I feel like my own sensibilities are are very aligned with yours. But we've had different, and these are all names you know. Like Lee Child was on; he doesn't outline, nope. and he feels it puts more energy on the page if he even even he doesn't know what's going to happen next. He sort of figures it out almost as the reader does. For me, I, I I feel like it's easier to do what you've described, which is to have an outline, and then as you sit down, it's helpful to stare at the blank page, knowing you've got this sort of infrastructure behind you of an outline. Yeah. And then it's just like nothing but clear air in front of you. Like, I can just write off this, you know? Uh, you know, one of, one of the best mystery writers ever is this lady, Ruth Rendell, and who also wrote under Barbara Vine. And some of her books are, they're classics. I mean, she's just, and she wrote without outlines. And, the, and she was a compulsive writer. She would write so much that her books never sold because there were just too many of them, you know? <laughs> so like, she was never on any bestseller list or anything like that. But she was, she was great. But the one thing about her, and this is true of some other very good authors who don't outline is she would write the same book a lot. Not always, but just she had to write like five books before she got to the sixth book, which was different than the first, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's because she didn't, I feel that's because if you have an outline in front of you, you can look at it and say, you know what? I've done that before. I'm going to change that. I'm going to go down a different path. Mm -hmm. And it just means less time you don't have to make the mistakes on page 200. You can make the mistake on your outline and then get to page 200 yeah, and you're yeah. set. How about editing? Do you edit as you go? By the way, I'm interrupting the conversation here to put a couple more ice cubes in yeah, my glass I'll, I'll and take a, a little, little more scotch because I'm enjoying this Isn't it good? Conversation. You know, what's, what's interesting about McAllen is that the 12 and the 15 year, I think, are the best. They charge a million dollars as they get up older and older, mm -hmm. but I think right around twelve and fifteen they get it just right, and that's uh, that's that's interesting to yeah. you know uh, the only one other big Scotch order on the show is Jay Fielden who did Doers twelve, mm. uh, but again with yeah. the twelve year, so yep. I don't know, something about twelve. Um, where were we? Uh, now yeah, I'm, right. <laughs> so <laughs> edit. Got, do you edit as you go, or do you do a big edit at the end? No, I'm a. I'm, that's the other thing. I'm a compulsive rewriter. I rewrite mm -hmm. as I go. I rewrite after. I, I. My wife reads my stuff, and then I rewrite off her notes, and then I rewrite again. Mm -hmm. I, re, I, I rewrite so often. You, you know, I. You mentioned this podcast. I do it. Opens with a written satire to the beginning I'm, i go over those like a hundred yeah. times so these, I mean, these are future questions which yeah. is great <laughs> you know what let's skip to that because as, as uh listeners may know the andrew clavin show is a huge huge show many new shows have producers they have writers who write the scripts i like bill o'reilly used to write his own talking points um megan kelly writes her her uh, talking points as well. So do you do a lot of the writing? Do you have writers on your show? No writers. <laughs> no writers. You write everything. I write everything. Which is a lot. I mean, a lot of it's obviously free-form conversation like this, but you also do yes, some Yes, I, I, I don't have to write every word of the show. I mean, that would that would take forever. But I ver write a very tight opening satire, mm -hmm. and 
that's that's probably when I, the show used to be four days a week and I stopped because I just didn't think I thought the quality was suffering but that was the hardest thing I've ever done creatively was write four of those satires because first of all they had to be really funny so you have to go over every word to make sure it's the funniest word it can possibly be and you know just coming up with an idea for a satire every day is not that easy even though our government provides a lot of satirical right, right. material a lot of material <laughs> yeah. but but still you know I I want you know, you you mentioned that I've done a lot of different things, and I always think I, it's, like, it's like the the Indian with the buffalo. I only have one talent. I just use every piece of it I can get my, <laughs> my hands on. You know, and and always with everything, I I rewrite until I feel like that's as good as I'm going to make it. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a perfectionist who understands there's no such thing as perfection. Right. I think that that would be the way I would describe myself. I'll go over something literally a hundred times, and I'm not exaggerating. But at some point, I think it's now getting worse. That's the only way yeah. I know that I've hit the. That's you know. I, you know, I describe my wife the same way because she's not a perfectionist, and I, I would say you're the same. But she's an exceptionalist. Like yeah, it has to be extremely. Her bar is so high. Yeah, and she works very hard. And anything she's going to put her name on is going to be very, very good. That's the thing. That is the thing. You know, it comes. It, it's it's not a good feeling when something comes out and. It, it, I don't care if I get attacked by the critics if I know it's good, yeah. but I do care if they and attack me. Stand and by right. it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so how do you – so we, we discussed the many things you do, and so the audience has, a, I think, a flavor of that. How do you structure your time? Well – I wake up very early. I don't sleep a lot anyway, so I'm up. I was very, wondering if you're one of those people who sleeps three I, or four hours a night. Three or four just, hours a night, yeah. yeah. And I always have, and I doesn't bother me at all. And and I like to get going to work early solves so many problems. You know, you just have a lot more at the end of the day. You just have a lot more time. But I try to do my writing. You know, in the first thing in the morning, I, you know, after a cup of coffee, I just go in and write mm-hmm. for hours and. And then the rest of the day, I can spend doing the things you have to do. You call, you have to talk to people on the phone. You have to read. I have to read a lot, you know, to to, to know where I'm going, what I'm what I'm thinking about, and all that. And um, but I, I think the morning is the time when I write best. When I when I was young, I would write overnight. I would write, start writing at like eight and write till three in the morning, and it would feel great. I would look and think, this is genius, and then the sun would come up and think like, wow, this stinks. You know? so, but this is the time when I I feel I do my best work, and I I, I live a very disciplined life. I mean, I have when I I wrote my first novel when I was fourteen, and I read it was because of Raymond Chandler. I read in a In a book of his letters, he said, a writer should write four hours a day. He doesn't have to write anything as long as he doesn't do anything else. Mm-hmm. And I thought, and I would do that I, as a yeah. teenager, as a kid. I would write four hours a day. I still do, and uh, you know, at least. What happened that. to this novel from when, when you were fourteen? Uh, I wasn't as good as I thought it was. I, <laughs> as a fourteen-year-old, you still have it somewhere I in, doubt a, it. in a I binder. Doubt it. That's a, it's a good question. It'd be fascinating to go back. And it read would that. be fascinating. And it was, you know, before. I don't know if you ever saw the Woody Allen picture, "Play It Again, Sam," uh, where he's Bo, he thinks he's Bogart. He pretends to be Bogart. It was written before that, but that's what that was the story. Okay. A, a guy who thinks he's a tough guy. That's so funny. You know. you know, it's interesting to hear you describe, you know, how you spend your week. One of the things I, I've been a little busier these past couple of weeks with some things going on, and I've missed one thing I almost always do, which is I sit and do nothing. I yep. mean, you, you talk about your your read, your reading. You got to read for your show, and you got to write and everything, make your calls. But I, I sometimes will just sit and think, and and it's not as like 
it's not like I'm staring at a blank wall. Usually I have a pad of paper to just write down what comes to mind or I, I'll make a list of what I need to do for the week. But it helps me decompress and organize my thoughts just to sort of sit and for an hour once a day, I try and just sit and do nothing and think. That's great. I, I walk. That's my thing. I, say, <laughs> right. I, I love to walk, and I'll walk for. I will walk for hours. You know, just just go off for two hours and walk, and and that is it's enormously helpful. Every you have, day you try to structure. Not, you, not like, every you day, schedule but, it, but I I do put it in there in the week. I put schedule. it in the week. Yeah. You know, during the week I, I'll yeah. do it, and um, I I couldn't agree with you more. I think one of the biggest things if i'm driving somewhere i don't listen to anything i don't turn on the radio i you know silence is an, an enormous help yeah and there's so little of it around these days that it's, it, you have to actually search it out that's why like the train seems to be a, i i love train rides these days yeah we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back bp added more than 70 billion dollars to the u.s economy in 2022 Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So last question on process, though. You are surrounded, as we said earlier, by all these gifted writers yeah. in your family. You mentioned your wife is one of your readers. How about early readers for your fiction? You know, or, I, or nonfiction? I, I always found it really hard to find readers. So one of the things about my wife is I know she's on my side, mm -hmm. and I know she just wants the book to be good. And so even if I disagree with her, I don't think like why would she say that? You know, and I know that sounds really suspicious, but it's true that you people have preconceived notions. Yeah. You know, you do a podcast. I'm sure you get all kinds of letters from people who say, you said this, but this is the truth. And you have this opinion, but the real people. They're all saying more Clavin. Where's Andrew Clavin? <laughs> well, of course, of course they're saying that. But, but no, I, I mean, I think it's very hard for people to get past the fact that they're reading somebody else. Like I'm, I'm a good reader for people because I want them to say what they want to say. Mm -hmm. And a good editor is like that. So all my life, it's been very difficult to find readers. I've been really fortunate. My wife, she was a, a professional editor and a professional agent for a while. She's an excellent line editor. Mm -hmm. My editor, uh, Otto Penzler, who is, is probably the greatest mystery editor alive. I, would, I think he yeah. is. And uh, he's, he's a great editor. And so there are people I, I trust, but there's very... There's very few like friends that I would just give mm -hmm. a book to. It's also such a big thing to ask somebody. It's, to it's read a big. A book. It's, it's yeah. many hours commitment to yeah. edit a book like uh, that. But um, that's that's great. Spencer, does he ever sort of give feedback on things? Yes. Oh yeah, definitely show something to Spencer and to my daughter as well. Yeah. And they have very specific, you know, 
areas of expertise where they can uh, talk to me. Spencer, as I say, is a scholar, so I can tap him for the kind of scholarship that I sometimes mm-hmm. need. And he's, um, you know, they're they're both they're both good editors. My my daughter Faith is a, a professional editor. She edits freelance and has people have come to her and have published their books after she's gone mm-hmm. over them. And so she's always a good voice too. Faith. Clayton? Faith Moore. Faith Moore. Faith Moore. Okay. M-O-O-R-E. Yeah. That's, a, that's a great industry for, I mean, a lot of people listen to the show are avid readers, but some avid writers or, you know, aspiring to be published writers. And so they know, like, the, the freelance publishing world is powerful because, you know, as, as big houses skinny down, yep. many of these great editors work as freelance editors and they charge a, you know, a fee per page or whatever the thing is, but that can really lift a, a book to the next level and, and get it sold. It makes it so. makes a huge difference, especially as you say, publishers don't edit like they used to. Right. And they used to buy a book and say, okay, this, this has got problems, but we're going to put it, get it into shape. And they don't do that either. Yeah, I agree. They used to buy it at like 70% and help you finish the last 30. Now yeah. they buy it at 98%. Exactly. And, exactly. and yeah. finish the last two. So Faith Moore yeah. is a good place to go Absolutely. for that. Um, before we get to the, the latest novel, I want to talk about your show briefly, The Andrew Claven Show. You do some politics, some culture. You do you do a lot of different yeah. stuff on there. Can you tell us a bit about the show? Well, it it, it one of those things that grew kind of naturally. I I, I was writing in uh, in Hollywood, and I was doing well. You know, you you can sell scripts that don't get made and make a fortune in Hollywood. And basically, you know, I I wrote things that were selling all the time, and then. I started to get a little bit loudmouthed about my politics because the Iraq and Afghanistan war started and Hollywood started making movies about the American soldiers being the bad guys. And I thought, you know, I I can totally see that you're against the war and that's fine, but you don't make propaganda against our soldiers while they're being shot at. That's actually a bad thing to do. That's like an immoral thing to do. So I started giving speeches about that and writing about it and writing op-eds in the LA Times. And funnily enough, my phone stopped ringing and I was <laughs> completely gone. But but at that point, I had lived out of the was country. Was there a China connection in this? I often yeah. hear China raised when these topics come up. I was out of the country. Right, because they're funding all the films and things like uh, that, right? Yes, they are. And also, these are a bunch of guys who never have been anywhere. They sit around at the Cafe Marmont and say, like, oh, isn't George W. Bush an idiot? And, they, they you know, they're not like the, the guys like uh, Oliver Stone, who was actually in Vietnam, who made movies about Vietnam. Fair enough. And he made them after the soldiers had come home. Mm-hmm. He, so he made movies about how bad that war was after the soldiers were home, not while the enemy could use those as propaganda, which was what was actually happening. I actually had myself embedded with the troops in Afghanistan just so I could write with authority about it. And and they were. They were using Hollywood movies as propaganda against our troops. And our troops were doing their best to make friends and influence people. And Hollywood was hurting them. And so I found myself just speaking out about things that I didn't want to speak out about at all. I never wanted to be in front of a camera ever. I mean, I'm a writer. I like being in a room by myself, you know, kind of semi-anonymous. But at that point... I started to see the first internet news stations coming up, like PJ Media was the one that I got involved with. Breitbart had one. Mm -hmm. And 
a friend of mine asked me, would I do some videos for him? And I didn't want to, I said, I'm not going to be on camera. I don't want to do anything like that. But then he showed me some of the stuff they were doing and it was good, but it was very serious. And I said, I would do that as Monty Python. If you let me do that like nuts, just like crazy, you know, I will, I will do that. And he said, sure, go ahead. And it was a big success, you know? So it was like, suddenly I had these videos that were getting like a million hits. And I thought, well, that's, you know, I'm not going to stop doing it because it's obviously working. And I thought it was good, too. You know, I thought it was funny. And and then my friend Jeremy Boring said, I'm starting a, you know, a new station. Uh, it started out as one thing called Truth Revolt. And then that fell apart. And he said, I'm going to do did it this, again. Did it occur to you like there are echoes of your father suddenly happening? Oh, believe me. I, I thought, you know, my father was a stone liberal his whole life. And I thought, I'm like like, like the dark version of my father. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm like my I'm evil dad, you know. Right, it's like the Han Solo, whatever. But 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 I just I was I was comfortable with it at that. You know, my father and I like always were kind of a daggers drawn, and so like I'm not sure in my youth I would have been comfortable with it. But at this point, I was thinking, this is me, you know. I'm I'm doing stuff that is coming directly out of my heart and out of my consciousness, and so I'm just going to go with it. Well, it's interesting you raise your father. So you you began as a as very much of a liberal, growing growing in a Mm -hmm. liberal household, and you would. Have yeah. considered yourself liberal, and it seems like you had sort of a Charles Krauthammer evolution of you know Charles was a liberal who became you know one of the smart voices, yeah. sort of a National Review type voice of you know center right, I would say. Yeah, no, I, you, you know what happened to me is I, I moved to England and because of the political correctness in the late 80s. Now, they call it woke, but it was pretty strong then too. And I was sitting at a dinner party in New York. And I said, I had a son and a daughter, and I said, boy, boys are really different than girls. It was like late 80s. And this dinner party shut down. I mean, it just shut down. And we left the restaurant. I turned to my wife, and I said, On that alone, just yes. boys are different from yeah. girls. Wow. And, and as we were walking out, I turned to my wife, and I said, baby, we are leaving the country. I, I am not going to live in a country where I can't speak the simplest things without killing a dinner party. And so we decided, we'll go to England for a year. I had friends in England. I thought I could meet people there. And I fell madly in love with it. And so we were there seven years. And so I'm in, in England for seven years. I'm a liberal, as far as I know. I'm not paying attention to American politics. Clinton is having his affairs and getting impeached and all this. I'm not paying attention to any of it. I'm paying attention to John Major and, you know, the like, Spice uh, Girls, uh, yeah, yes, yes, all of that. <laughs> That's what I'm paying. My kids are in British schools and all this stuff. And one day I just say, you know what, it's, it's getting to be around 2000. And suddenly out of nowhere, I just thought I got to go home. And one day I go to a dinner part, a, a party. And it's all American writers, and they're all going home. It was something about the millennium, you know. It just made everybody feel like, let's go, mm-hmm. let, let's not die in England. Let's let's go home. And I came back, and shortly afterwards, nine eleven happened. And I'm sitting in front of the TV, and everybody's in shock, and I'm in shock, and all my family is in New York, and it's a disaster, you know. And David Letterman, I don't know how many people remember him. He was the late night comic mm-hmm. and the hip. He was the hip late night comic, you know, not like Jay Leno, who was kind of the middle of the yeah, road. I like, love Letterman. He, was, cool. he yeah. was great. He came on and he said, I have to talk out loud about this and ask myself, why do they hate us? And I, I'm sitting there and I and remember I've been out of the country, so I haven't seen it, all these changes that have gone on. And I thought, why do they hate us? 
They're Nazis. They're supposed to hate us. These are the bad guys. They are supposed to hate us. It's not our fault they hate us. It's not all f- our fault Hitler hated right, us hate or us Stalin hated us. We're a free society. Us. Yeah, we're yeah. a free society. They're supposed to hate us. Why would you even ask yourself that question? And I began to realize that the culture had changed in yeah. radical ways. Oh, my and gosh. All I, right. And, and I started talking about that, and I realized, oh, I seem to be a conservative, you know? And, and so, like, funny things would happen, like, I had heard about this guy, Rush Limbaugh, and he was the devil and he was the worst person ever. And so I thought, well, I better listen to him. And I thought, he's kind of good, actually. I kind of agree with him, you know. And so all these people that I was suddenly agreeing with were on the other side. I lost so many friends. I cannot tell you. Well, People in my family, there are people in my family who will not speak to me anymore. You know, it's just like, but it was obvious. It was just obvious. And now I think with the stuff that's going on today is even more obvious. Two quick things. So on the Letterman front, we went to a school... Uh, in the, we used to live in Manhattan and we went to a school in Manhattan and we were at this parent thing. They were changing the headmasters. And so the new headmaster was coming while the whole old headmaster was still there, but he was coming to sort of introduce himself to the community of which he would be the head in the, in the coming fall. And there was this guy, two seats down from me, he had like a beard down to his belly, gray muzzle, looked like a homeless guy. Mm. And he raises a question. He raises his hand, like any questions from the audience. And this guy, the, the homeless-looking guy, raises his hand. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to be interesting. And he stands up, and I hear the voice. And as soon as I hear the voice, it's David Letterman. Yeah. I knew 100. percent I'm like, oh my gosh. And he asks this bananas question too. And so then, uh, you know. Anyway, I, but I, I was always I grew up a Letterman fan. Oh, he was hilarious. And, uh, yeah. You know. But I was going to, speaking of the culture shifting underneath you, and then we'll get off culture and, and, and politics and all this stuff, but I remember Dennis Prager going on Bill Maher's show like six years ago, maybe it was five years ago, something like that. And he was talking about like transgender and bathrooms and things like that. And Bill Maher almost like booed his own guest off the stage like that. You're just, you're creating things that don't exist. You're talking about all this stuff that's not. Fast forward literally like 18 months. It was less than two years. Right. Bill Maher is up in arms about the same thing that Dennis Prager was saying 18 months before. Like, it it had happened that fast. And it's not like Bill Maher is not up on the news or, right. or anything. I mean, but Prager was, you know, somehow seeing it before Maher did. But Maher did see it, you know. And, uh, yes. But it was and, only 18 months. I mean, that's how fast it happens for things to sort of shift beneath your feet. That That is the thing. I mean, this is an expert takeover of a culture. It is not an accident. It's been going on for 50, 60 years and, you know, you hit a singularity, you hit a point where everything shifts. And that had happened while I was away, while I was out of the country. So where people who were in it, like the frog in the boiling water. Was they it couldn't... not happening over there, though? Were you seeing no, the boiling that, happening no, in the UK? No, you know what time? happened? Everything was slower over there. When I got to, when I got to England, they were living in like... In the 1950s, almost, you know, you'd see little boys with like short pants and all this. You know, yeah, I know you're laughing. Yeah, and uh, stick ball in the yeah, street. Yeah. yeah, and and Blair came when Blair came in. The biggest change was that the food got better because the food in England was always awful, and suddenly there were Indian restaurants, Chinese restaurants, and all these different restaurants. And I thought, oh, this is great. I love it. You know, but it, there was still a culture there that was identifiable. So when you were with your kids in a playground. The other parents were telling them to do the same things that you were telling your kids to do. So in other words, if, if your kids stole something from another kid, you both agreed that that was wrong. Mm-hmm. And there was no, no problem with that. That was starting to end as I left. And when I came here, it was just magnified a thousand times that somebody could say, you know, um, 
we're supporting people who, well, right now, for instance, kill Jews. I mean, you say like, yeah. you know, you have people on college campuses saying this is a good idea. That wasn't happening there. And here it really was. It really did happen that this 9-11 took place and people said, well, maybe they have a point. And I just thought, no, you know, you really have to be able to say no, you d never have a point when you do something like that. And that was what this rel relativism, the stuff that I had rebelled against, basically, yeah. the stuff that my novels were kind of exploring up until that point. You know, while I was in England, I wrote a novel called True Crime, and it was a bestseller. It was made into a movie and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But at the very opening of this, there's a line in which a guy on death row says something to the effect of there's an old Chinese philosopher who says, how do you know whether you're a man dreaming he's a butterfly or a butterfly dreaming he's a man? And the next line is, you know. <laughs> and and that was the turning point of my philosophical life, mm -hmm. the, writing that sentence and just saying, you know, I don't have to deal with this anymore. You know, you know, you're not a butterfly dreaming. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yeah. just the, the confidence at that point, I had become an educated person. I had I knew what I was talking about. And I thought just the confidence to just say, I'm not going to be gulled by this silly French philosophy that came out of, you know, people who collaborated with the Nazis in France. I'm not going to be gulled by that any longer. But you know, the, somewhere but there's writers happened. like having their Philip Marlowe moment that you had. And it could be on the gender thing. Like yeah. the, the like, right. I mean, it's like, yes. how do you know you're not a butterfly? It's like, I, I know that I'm a man or whatever the thing yeah. is. Right. Yes. It's like, but that you're you're. That. You're paying it forward, the Philip Marlowe uh, yeah. thing. You're paying it forward. Yeah. All right, so we're going to get off culture for a bit and talk about the house of love and death. And the the one thing that my main takeaway, so I, I read it, I devoured it. It was a night and a bit of a morning. Huh. You and I spoke after yeah. I started it, and uh, I'd been up all night reading it, and I finished it the following morning. My main takeaway is you have mastered the art of pacing. Nah. <laughs> because there are so many mystery books or thriller books that you read and, you know, the, the author needs to move the plot from point A to point B. And so you have to sort of set it up. And so some people basically give you a bunch of information about here what you're going to have to know for the next scene to happen. And so that's fine. But then if they don't do it well, you've read two and a half pages and you're thinking, well, nothing's happened for two pages yes. while I get ready <laughs> to understand what's about to happen. That never happens with you. you. So with those books, you sort of have the sense of the foot coming on and off the gas. You know, with you, like it might, there's variability, of course, like, but it might go from 50 to 100, but you found a way to sort of weave it in where the foot is really never off the gas. I mean, it's just like a great, well-paced book. Oh, well, first of all, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, you know, the, the big turning point in my career was I was struggling, as I was really struggling, I was really struggling to find a voice. And I knew I had the skill at writing crime stories. And I knew I loved crime stories, but I felt like I felt like I, I saw more than the crime story could hold. You know, I thought I, I thought the crime story was too small for what I was trying to say. And then I read a famous Victorian novel called The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. Some people believe it was really written by or rewritten by Charles Dickens, who was Collins' pal. But it, it's a classic, and I, I literally was lying in bed, and I sat up in bed, and I thought, that's how you do this. That's how you get real ideas and real vision into the mystery novel. Mm -hmm. And my first thought was, except in an American mystery novel, it's got to move much faster because we're so affected. Our consciousness, our consciousness has been colonized by the movies. Movies yeah. have a very certain pace. 
I love certain kinds of movies like Hitchcock movies and uh, suspense movies, and I've broken down how those work. And so, yeah, my whole purpose was to try and get the kind of depth that was in The Woman in White into mm-hmm. something that moves like a bullet. That was that was actually what I said to myself at the very beginning of my career. And which makes sense that you have this English professor, former, <laughs> like your character is such a sophisticated, smart person that his observations of the world bring in great observations for the reader that you can actually like come away with some some interesting thoughts about about the human condition in a way but that, that also reminded me we just watched the birds ah, yeah. with our kids so our kids yeah. are 14 12 and 10 and we so we were like all right let's do a little hitchcock you yeah know, this is this is the one that spawned all the others and uh i have to say it doesn't totally hold up in today's world like it was great and i can see why it's studied and there are you know, the suspense is amazing. It doesn't even get scary until like an hour yes, in. It's amazing. not even scary for a long time. I know. Yeah. And uh, and the ending is bizarre. It sort of ends where you're sort of scratching your head like, what the hell? Yeah. I don't understand why we just watched this thing, yeah. <laughs> which is what all our kids were saying. But it is, you can also see Hitchcock's brilliance in there too, of course. Well, uh, you know, it's funny. If you go back to some of the classics, the pacing is slow for kids today. Mm-hmm. Maybe Psycho is probably too scary for a 10-year-old, but that's the one that has the most modern pacing yeah. in it. But his his stuff like Vertigo and Rear Window and, um, you know, the North by Northwest. North by yeah. Northwest they might really like, actually. But but I grew up watching that stuff. And one of the things was my father had a friend who would give him films and he would show them on a sheet. He would hang up a sheet in the in the basement. And we'd watch these movies that weren't on TV. And so that stuff kind of just infused my consciousness. So when I went to do it, hilariously, when Hitchcock died, some of his films became unavailable because of some kind of, uh, you know, inheritance thing that I don't know, quite know what it was. But apparently they couldn't be shown. And so for years I didn't see them. And then one day they were in the theater and my brother and I went and we watched Rear Window and I came out and I thought that guy stole a lot from me and <laughs> because, <laughs> because I just ingested it you know just to become part of the way I thought well so for, for Cameron Winter your character in the House of Love and Death is there a next book in the works yeah I finished the draft actually uh, just uh, about a week ago which is why I'm wandering around like this um, <laughs> um, yeah no I'm hoping I, I've got a contract for this book, the book I just finished, and one more, and I'm hoping I can get it to 10 books because he's on a journey. There's no yeah. question about it. Yeah. And he's in a certain, the, the books, I mean, if you watch The House of Love and Death, it really is about the way things fall apart. And that's kind of what some of the, it's kind of one of the main themes of the books in general is how things fall apart and what do you do as an individual to keep yourself together in a society that's falling apart. This is something, uh, you know, my friends and I debate all the time. If it's inevitable that a republic falls, is it heroic to stand up for the republic or do you move on to make the empire work well? You know, what is what is the right action to take in a society that has gone wrong? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's kind of what Cameron Winter is doing. He's a man who jokes some times that he's living in the year 1795 while everything around him is, is in flames and and yet there's something about that that gives him a kind of center that other people don't have and i really like that about him i, I like living with him because i like his his moral center it'd be interesting to see the arc of this character through the book series is because some some book series the character sort of static yeah. And he, he sort of does what he does over, you know, it's like we get him into trouble, we get him out of trouble, and there's your book, and, and then we do it again. 
this reminds me, Jack Carr was on the show, and he has his character who each one sort of, it's an evolution. The character is very different from in book four than he was in book one because right. all these things have happened and he's he's a different guy then and he's in a different place. And so that sounds like Cameron Winter's journey is going to be uh, an in- interesting one to watch. Yeah, and he's and he is in therapy because of his past, which is a very brutal, violent past. And so you get the kind of past story at the same time you're getting the yeah. present story. And you get to watch him develop. And, yeah. and he really does change. I mean, he really goes through some revelations and catharsis. So book three, this is book three, which is yeah. my entry, actually. I haven't read one and two yet. But it, it, it's easy to, t- to start at book three. And um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm purposely doing it that way. I'm purposely yeah. making it so you can walk in the door at any book. But I also want them to link together. So that's that's one of the structural challenges of writing them. Yeah, yeah. All right, so on to the lightning round. All right, the lightning round. Oh. The lightning round for Andrew Clavin. Your favorite book as a kid? My favorite book as a kid was probably Shane, the Western. You know, stranger rides into town. There's a range war going on, and he's a mysterious stranger who has to fix it all. And I read that book five times, and I just just loved it. I mean, I, there was something about it that was so romantic and exciting. How did the movie hold up for you? You know, the movie the movie is good, and I like the movie out of loyalty to the book. But the book is a great American novel. Yeah. I mean, not novella. It's very short. Uh, the movie is kind of long and Alan Ladd is a little bit miscast and you know it's it's mm-hmm. funny it's not as good as you remember it but it still has some wonderful stuff in it most of which comes from the book okay book or books you're reading now what am I reading now I just uh, I'm, I'm I'm doing a lot of research right now so it's kind of boring but I'm uh, I'm reading a lot of books about um, about murder, actually, I'm, I'm writing. I'm writing a nonfiction book about murder, and uh, so I'm reading like through the through centuries, the, or... yeah, through the ages, and it, it's uh, and so that's been really interesting. I'm I'm reading a lot of um, a lot of really decent modern novels. You know, like I I, I sometimes I I can get lost in the past. I love. Mm-hmm. You know, old writing and all this. I'm trying to read some some good modern novels, and there aren't that many around. And I like. Do, do any spring to mind? Oh boy! I mean, the best modern novels I think are Patrick O'Brien. Have you ever read Patrick O'Brien? No. Oh man, you have to read Patrick O'Brien. Oh, gosh, he, 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 have you ever read the, the Horatio Hornblower? Uh, he died a while back. He's like, but not that long ago. Have you Have you read the Horatio Hornblower books? No. All right, the Horatio Hornblower books follow a guy in a. a a sailor in the Napoleonic Wars from being a midshipman to being an admiral. And they're some of the greatest adventure novels ever written. So what Patrick O'Brien did is he took them and he turned them into literature. So they're much slower. His his books are much slower and deeper and richer, but they're kind of almost the same story as the Hornblower books, mm-hmm. but told, I don't know, as literature. And it's they're just great. I, when he died, I was so sorry because he was the last novelist that I went to the bookstore to get, you know. <laughs> I, you know, the best novel I've read recently was um, that, that I hadn't read before was Somerset Maugham's The Razor's Edge. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. Great book, yeah. That, that's that's a phenomenal one. I reread that one like three years ago. Yeah. Was, that is a great one. All right, least attended, speaking of book, book events that you attended, least attended book event ever of your own where you were the author. Oh, my Lord. I was in a, a blizzard in Boston and went to a little bookstore 
And the idea that anybody, even the people who ran the bookstore, could hardly get there. And I tra- tramped in, and nobody came. Of course, yeah. nobody came to sign. It was, but every writer, every writer who signs books, this is why I stopped doing it. Like, no, every writer who signs books has been to an event where nobody shows up, you know? Everyone and, on this show has had a zero. Yeah. Pretty I, much. I mean, unless, like, David Duchovny, you know, wrote his first book when he's already a okay, big star. Yeah. So he, you know, he had some people, but yeah, it's amazing. I mean, you know, all these big stars were. Not big stars at one point. Yep, yep. And that was that was painful, though. That was just absolute agony. So you trudged through the snow, I got trudged. there, and then what happened? Uh, we, we knew nobody was going to show up, so we <laughs> sat around and chatted amiably, but it was uh, embarrassing for them, embarrassing for me. You know, it was just, just an just absolute murder. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I've repeated this uh, observation a few times on this show, but Amor Toll says that a zero is better than a one. Because if one comes, you've got to do the thing. Yes. He's absolutely <laughs> if it's right. it's a zero, you just absolutely leave. Right. I just finished. There's a novel. I just finished his his book, uh, Gentleman in Moscow. Uh, Gentleman in Moscow is terrific. Loved it. It's amazing. I just loved it. Yeah. Rules of Civility is also great. In fact, I, I almost prefer Rules. Okay. And then Gentleman in Moscow is great. And then Lincoln Highway is his latest, which is also great. I, I just stumbled on that book. You know, saw a bunch of good reviews for it. Thought, oh, I'll read the first 10 pages. And I just thought, no, no, no. This is great. Now, yeah. Matt, like, uh, you know... You can say charming is one of the one of the great words to apply to that book. It's yes. just a charming book. And and I was really suspicious of it because it was so pleasant. Mm-hmm. You know, so charming is a good word. But it's really got some dark stuff in there buried buried underneath. <laughs> well, it, yeah, the, the Bolshevik re- regime is uh, is uh, yeah. not charming. Okay, next question. A few actors who could make a good Cameron Winter, who is your main protagonist. I'm so bad at this. You know, I I used to have to pitch movies. When I was working in Hollywood, I would go in and pitch movies. And they ask you every time, they say, who do you think would be a good star for this movie? And I would freeze because I never would know. You know, the, you know the guy. The guy. I mean, Christian Bale could do it. Somebody like that. Somebody elegant and British who can do a good American accent. Yeah. Uh, there's there was a a recent. Um, I have someone in mind. By okay, the way. tell me. Tell me. Timothy. I don't know. Actually, I don't. I wish I. I should have like done the YouTube thing of like how do you pronounce the yeah. name Chalamet. What's Timothy what's Chalamet. he been in? So he's he's like a young guy, sort of the the it guy in a few things. He was in Dune. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. oh yes. I know him. Handsome, no, I, I've got him. Yes, young yes, guy. yes, yes. He would be good. There was a a John Le Carre TV show called The Night Porter, with um, who <laughs> I'll never. Oh, with, oh, the, I know who you mean. This yeah. guy who plays Loki. Um, yes, yes, he's the guy who plays Loki. Oh, that Hiddleston, does, that, Tom Tom Hiddleston. Tom Hiddleston, yeah, 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 he would be good too. I mean, he would be, yeah, he'd be good. A yeah. British guy who can do an American accent, I think, is the way to go. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, next question: favorite few recent TV shows to recommend? Well, let's see. You know, TV was for, from about 2000 to 2015. TV was in a golden age. Yeah, and do you now, feel like it's ended? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I, th- I mean, it doesn't. The streamers mean are out of money. They're all. The streamers are out of money. They're pockets, also no. wokeness has killed everything. Wokeness yeah. is death to art. You know, um, like the New York Times recently ran an article. Why is our culture dead? I thought because of you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> like look in the mirror. Why do you think it's dead? Um, you know, I, I they recently redid a sequel of Justified, which a show I loved. Uh, you know about it was an Elmore Leonard. Uh, Western hero in a modern setting, basically. Mm-hmm. And they did a sequel to it where he's now older and it was in Detroit and it was based on one of Leonard's novels. So it was really good. It was really solid, exciting, 
you know, very good about corruption the way Leonard, Elmore Leonard was. So that was really good. I, I'm not like like just just to give you an example. I'm watching the science fiction show on Apple TV now called Silo, which is based on wool, which was a kind of an internet sensation. And it's good. You know, it's well-written. Anything based on a novel is going to be better than stuff that a screenwriter writes because it's just got, you know, it's going somewhere. The main character played by a lovely Swedish actress is a man. You know, it's it, she's supposed to be a girl, but she all her traits are men's traits. And I just think, like, I don't buy it. I don't believe it. I, I believe it could happen, but I don't believe it does happen, if you see what I mean. Like, she's, you know, she, she's a mechanic, and she lifts things that no woman on earth who's built like she is. She's a little frail, sweet-looking thing, you yeah. know? And I just, I'm so tired of being preached to by people I can tell you, Doug, are the worst people in the country. (laughs) The people in Hollywood are not the best people in the country. They shouldn't be preaching to us. They should be just telling stories. So recently that Justified reboot was the best thing I've seen. And I can't think of anything offhand. Are you watching anything that you're loving? Well, uh, I would say Slow Horses. Have you seen oh, that? Oh, no, I love that, that book. That was good. And Gary, I, I love that book. And the, oh, have you seen the show? I, I saw Gary the show, Oldman? and it was, yes, it was so much like the book that I sort of thought I, I've oh, seen so this know. already. But, but, I, I, didn't, I hadn't read the book. The show, Gary yeah. Oldman in the show is, it's great. Yeah. I, I he's, really he's terrific, and that's a really, that book is a really good piece of writing, too. Really clever. We're, uh, so my wife and I are in the middle of Severance right now. Oh, that I like, too. Yeah. Okay. It's weird. Very weird. But it and gets, we're like, we're kind of iffy about it but we can't we can't tune out either so stick that's a sign it. that it's good stick with it it actually pays off and the actor do you know his name i'm very i, I don't know the name he, the main guy mark yes S. he's yeah. a very subtle performance yeah where at first you don't like him and then about halfway through you start thinking no no i'm with this guy all yeah, the yeah, I, yeah i already like him yes yes but, uh the show is very weird it's very weird <laughs> and and i think i think there's something to more to like it's going to do another season and okay. i will actually watch it because i thought the first one ended well you know oh good all yeah. right so i think we've got like three episodes left or something all right last question for andrew clavin one piece of advice for listeners one piece of advice for listeners mm-hmm are they writer? Are they want to be? What kind of listeners do you have? You can take it any direct. This is a, a a group of avid readers, okay, and also writers. You know, the the one piece of advice. I mean, I'm someone who lost a a lucrative, a highly lucrative Hollywood career because I said what I thought, what I believed to be true, and I've lost audience on my show from time to time for saying what I think is true. And I've never lost a minute's sleep. I've lost a house. I've lost an income. I've lost a lot of things. I've never lost a minute's sleep for speaking the truth and saying what I, I meant to say. And I, see a, I, I say this, the reason I say this is because I see a lot of young people who are afraid. Mm. They're afraid of relationships. They're afraid of getting bad grades. They're afraid of being canceled. They're afraid of losing friends on um, social media. And I have to tell you, I I know the people. I know the people who didn't say what they thought and who saved their careers or who saved their bank accounts or who saved their social media. And I look in their eyes and I would not trade places with them for millions of dollars. There's no amount of money for which I would trade places with them. I wake up 
happy every morning. Truly, I wake up joyful. Uh, let's put it that way. Not not happy. Like I'm not an idiot. I wake up joyful every morning. And and to to be who you are and to say what you have to say mm-hmm. in a kind way. You don't have to be mean. You don't have to right. shout at people or anything like that. Is is a great great gift. And and I think our entire culture has fashioned itself into a machine for forcing you to lie because our culture believes things that aren't true. And the minute you notice that the emperor isn't wearing any clothes, it, it all falls apart. And so I, that that would be my advice to anyone at this point is mm-hmm. don't let them get you, you know, S- speak the truth, walk the truth, live the truth. You'll be so much happier. And yeah, it's going to cost you some money. It's going to cost you some friends, but it, it is worth everything. You know, there's a wonderful old movie called Blow Up uh, that was very impressive to me when I was a kid. But it's about a, a guy who's investigating a murder and he can't figure out what's real or what's unreal. And the final scene of the movie, nobody ever notices it. But the guy who's looking for reality sees a tennis game being played by clowns with no ball. And they're pretending to hit the ball back and forth. And ultimately, the ball, this invisible wall, rolls to the feet of our hero. And the clowns say to him, pick up the ball. Pick up the ball. And there's no ball there. And they keep saying, pick up the ball, pick up the ball. And he does. In the last frame of the movie, he picks up the ball and he disappears. Because he's bought into this fantasy of the culture around him. And I just think anything is worth not disappearing into a lie. And, and it, it really is. And I, I say this, I say it on, on purpose because I have lost things. I'm not somebody who's, who's saying this on the fly. I've, I've paid the price for, for doing this, doing what I do. I'd pay it again in a city minute. It's just, it is just the right way to live. And it feels so much better. And nobody, nobody ever looks in my eyes and think, I'm glad I'm not him, you know, because, because what they see is somebody who's having a great time. Well, Andrew, what a pleasure. That was, that was such a great conversation. Thank you so much. It's a delight. This is that we've talked to each other like twice in two weeks. It's been great. I know. (laughs) We actually have a lot to say to one another. (laughs) Great to see you. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. It's been great. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.